Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar, if you didn't already catch that from the intro. Today, I've got a bonus interview, if you would. This is an interview I had with a guy named Paul Wright out of Australia. He runs physioprofessor.com. He's got a mastermind group called the Profit Lab, where he basically speaks with somebody once a month. Uh, and broadcast that message to his audience, which is a bunch of practice owners across the globe. So a lot of his base is in Australia, but he's got clients that he works with in the U.S., in the U.K., a lot of the English-speaking world. So we sat down and we had a conversation around patient engagement, what is it, patient retention. We walked through the five steps for the ultimate patient experience that you can go to rehabupracticesolutions.com and download. Sign up for the email list there and we'll send it right to your inbox. So we talked a lot about that. We talked a little bit about the research around patient retention, course of care retention, and how a lot of that relates to and is more contingent upon interpersonal skills and interpersonal interactions between clinicians and the clients or the patients as opposed to the technical skills of the treating clinician. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship. We talk about, uh, I just purchased a physical therapy clinic here in my hometown where I'm based out of. So we talked a little bit about the decision to purchase that and why one might want to make that sort of a purchase in the uh, economic environment in which we find ourselves here at the tail end of 2020. So hopefully this is just a good uh, bonus episode, like I said, that you can kind of glean some information from that you can start implementing in your practice right away. So without any further ado, let's get right to that episode. Welcome, everyone. Your next session on Profit Club and Profit Club Academy. And in my quest, I've scoured the globe uh, to find experts from all different areas. So I've come across Raphael Salazar. Raphael, thanks for joining us on Profit Club. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Now, what, what interests me about, about, about Rafi is, is right into retention and, and patient engagement. And I'll, I'll give you his, his bio and you'll get the idea of why he's the expert on this. He's actually a licensed occupational therapist. Uh, practicing in the state of Georgia in the great USA. He's worked in a variety of settings from orthopedic, musculoskeletal rehab uh, to academia and other healthcare consulting. He spent the majority of his clinical experience working at Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center. So that's uh, the VA, Veterans Affairs, where he was the lead clinician and clinical education coordinator for the outpatient specialty rehab program. Uh, in that in that role, he treated many veterans with chronic pain and helped establish an interdisciplinary pain management program. It was in that role that he he rolled out the patient engagement initiative, which is what I'm really interested in today. 
rooted in really basic uh, relationship care. He left the VA, embarked on a journey of clinical consultant, worked on multi-billion dollar projects for the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health, all sorts of different projects, um, patient engagement initiatives, marketing communication campaigns, and, and disability programs. His experience as a faculty member of Augusta's University's Occupational Therapy Program, as a licensed board member of the Georgia State OT Board, co-founding member of the CRA Learning and Continuing Education Company, uh, focusing on adults with intellectual and development disabilities. Mate, this is an impressive CV, Rafi. <laughs> uh, he's found, but it, what was most interesting, he's founder of Rehab U Practice Solutions, who help healthcare organisations improve patient engagement and retention, which is what we're going to focus on today. And I love the tagline, Rafi. We're helping make healthcare human again. I love, oh, yeah. I love the tagline. And as a sideline, as we talked about, Raf and I talked about when we spoke a week or so ago, he's just purchased himself a physical therapy practice. So he's yeah, because I didn't have enough to do. Yeah, mate, there's nothing going <laughs> on there. So why not, why not get involved in in owning a practice? So anyway, we're going to talk about that today because I, I love entrepreneurs. I love the way they think and everything else. That's the glorified Rafi story. Uh, give me the real yeah. down and dirty version. What give us, give us the story from your perspective and what you learned along the way. Sure. So um, I started my career. Uh, I'd like to say that the world of rehab kind of found me. Um, the summer before my senior year in high school, I actually was fishing with some friends down at the river behind uh, the waterworks here in Augusta. I fell on a bottle cut my flexor pollicis longest tendon and ended up in an outpatient hand therapy clinic for you know three times a week for the balance of the summer, right before my senior year in high school. And I uh, just fell in love with rehab and the idea of being able to help people get better and get back to doing what they, what they really wanted to do. So, you know, I was a high school kid. I liked playing guitar, guitar, you know, attracted the ladies. Right. Yep. Um, and my therapist, you know, made me bring the guitar into the clinic, had me come in and um, really work on that stuff that was important. Um, and I had, at the time, I was thinking maybe I'll go to med school. My, my grandfather is a vascular surgeon and I thought maybe there's something in it for me. Um, but the surgeon that did my surgery was a great guy. I saw him right before the surgery. I saw him, uh, you know, three or four weeks after the surgery. And then I saw him six months later but it was the, the, the physiotherapist, the, the OTs and the PTs that I was working with that saw me three times a week and we built relationships and that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, so I went on after graduating high school, went into the, into, into the program, basically went and got my degree in occupational therapy, my master's in, in health science and um, basically been doing that ever since. I've, you know, like you read, I kind of deviated a little bit, left clinical care to do some consulting work, which was just a really good opportunity. And out of that kind of blossomed this idea for, for Rehab You and helping other healthcare organizations with patient engagement and patient retention. At the time when I was at Charlie Norwood, um, I don't know how, mu how much of your audience is from the US, but this was 2013, 2014, about the time that I was getting onboarded. And it was the time when the, the VA was coming under a lot of public scrutiny so the the whole scheduling issue was coming to the forefront and this was a big national scandal in the US where veterans were basically 
being told they were scheduled, but were being put on like paper logs that weren't in the computer system and patients were falling through the cracks and people would, you know, miss a colonoscopy and come back four years later and find out they had stage four colon cancer. And so it was, it was a really, really big deal. Um, and part of the VA's way to kind of one, kind of get a, a good PR initiative rolling, but also to just improve just the morale within the the clinicians that work at the at the agency and then the patients that were being served there was um, to roll out something called relationship based care and I was able to because of just my position in the at the VA at the time was able to kind of help roll that out into a couple of the wards at the hospital and saw that it had a lot of applications not just in the public sector where you're dealing with basically single payer you got the the US government funding the the healthcare but it had a lot of application into the private sector and began offering that sort of service to private clinics and it's been you know it's been a ride ever since left the VA in 2017 to do consulting full time and you know a couple of weeks ago bought a about a PT practice of my own, so. <laughs> but did you, for, for, for an because you've got an academic background, a professional, you've been on board, so you're you're an, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're an organization guy. But what yeah. is an entrepreneurial streak? What's the what led you away from that? Yeah, so you know, I had gone into the VA, and my dad was an immigrant, and he he firmly believed. So I'm first generation American. He firmly believed that um, it was it was our duty at some level to give back to the country that gave him so many opportunities that gives us so many opportunities. And I really kind of felt that that was going to be what I was going to do. I thought I was going to be, I landed this sweet gig at the VA um, doing outpatient upper extremity specialty care and was, was moving up through the ranks and thought, man, I could do this, you know, for the next 30 years um, until it came time to start really implementing some, some change at the VA to do basically what needed to be done to improve a, a patient's experience, both in the quality of care they receive, but then the, just the personal experience they have with the, the healthcare system. And I kept running into just red tape after red tape and brick wall after brick wall. And um, probably because I've got an entrepreneurial bend, I was like, well, forget this. If they're not gonna let me do the change here, I'll do the change somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it kind of you know, one thing led to another and I, I decided that it was probably better for my, for my career and for the, the work that I wanted to do to kind of leave, um, leave organizations that kind of, that, that provided opportunities, but were still very bureaucratic in nature and put a lot of restraints on what could and couldn't be done. And what, now then, what led you to want to then open a PT practice or buy a PT practice? You already got like your rehab, you practice solutions yeah. going, you got, I think what, what led you, was that just, an opportunity that was too good to miss. Um, our, our listeners are very in tune to where the opportunity was. So what, what, yeah. did, you, what did you see? So a couple things. So I do a lot of work with healthcare organizations. A lot of them are PT and OT and chiropractors. And, and a lot of them have multiple locations and this, that, and the other. A lot of the advice that I give and a lot of the consulting work that I do I like to say radically changes or fundamentally changes the way we approach healthcare. And um, I guess maybe about a year or so ago, I got this idea from a guy named Blair Enns who runs a, a, a marketing and sales training program, basically called win without pitching. But he said something on one of our calls. It was like, why don't you go be the client you want to see in the world? 
And what we were talking about was really just making a case study for your idea, for your expertise, for, for the, the program, if you would, if you happen to be one of those consultants that runs people through programs, mm. um, why don't you have a client, so to speak, that is you, that you're running, that you can point to people and say, this is a great case study. Um, and I was thinking in the back of my mind for the last year, like maybe I'll find a PT clinic and they'll be, you know, they'll be the case study for rehab you. And then COVID happened. And I mean, yeah. COVID is, I'm not going to say that it's amazing, but the opportunities that present in any kind of disaster or time of difficulty are, are they're all over the place. You just have to look for them. Yep. And there was a great clinic. It's actually about a block and a half from my home. I've been working at my home for the last three years. Um, and they were, the owners were looking at retiring, COVID happened. It became a lot of work for them to kind of keep in with the compliance and making sure everyone was up to date and um, just funding and payroll and all that. So they were ready to, to retire. And I was kind of looking at, you know, in the, in the back of my mind, I've always been thinking, okay, like I'm going to be the client I want to see in the world. I want to find a clinic that I can turn into a case study. And uh, it just made sense. The, the price was very, very reasonable because again, COVID kind of knocked valuations for a lot of service-based businesses down. So it just made, just made sense. For your, for your case study, was there, was there patient service and customer service ordinary already? It, was it, or was it okay? So are they going from a very low base and you're easy to fix or are they actually okay and you're just going to fine tune it? They were actually doing very, very well. That's one of the things that really attracted me to them and to this practice was that they spent $0 in marketing in the last five years and probably 90% of the business that they have is repeat, repeat customers. So they had the patient retention, at least the course of care retention and the, you know, there's two types of patient retention, the, the clinic retention nailed down. I mean, their patients were leaving and then coming back a couple of years later because they had a problem with their shoulder now or their hip. So they had done a very good job of establishing relationships in the community with all their patients. So it just made sense. Again, I could fine tune it a little bit, yep. maybe grow it a little bit with some of the marketing that we're doing now, but uh, yeah. But I'd, I'd be interested. We'll, we'll, we'll have to check back in, in 12 yeah. bucks and see what, see what you've done. I want to follow this case study. So I love, yeah, love exactly. the intervention that they, they say, they say you you find a business doing badly and with no systems and come in and put the systems in and you rapidly change it. Uh, interesting to see what happens what happens with your one, Rafi. So, but the guts of today's call, retention and patient engagement strategies, because you've done this from VA, you're now doing it in private practice. Let's get into the guts of that, because that's really, you know, we spend so much money on front end advertising, we've got to make sure we're getting our people there and staying. So what exactly do you mean when you talk about patient retention? Is there a definition? What actually is re patient retention? Yeah, so I kind of alluded to it a, a minute ago, but there's two types of patient retention. So when we say patient retention, we mean one, and this is probably the one that people think of the most and probably where the bulk of the work comes in is patients uh, coming back and completing their course of care. So course of care retention. So not only are they coming in at their first evaluation, and they're, but they're coming to their subsequent appointments until they meet their goals and you can discharge them. And then there's what's called clinic or organizational retention. And this is, if you're a small clinic, this might be a patient that, that came to see you for your shoulder and you, you worked on them for the shoulder. And now they're coming back in a year, a year and a half, two years, whatever, for their hip or for their knee. If you're in a larger healthcare organization, like one of the ones that I just finished working with, it has, you know, they've got a hospital, they've got outpatient centers, 
clinical retention, organizational retention really means, okay, they saw, they saw your PCP and now they're going to see a, a physio group that you own or, you know, something like that, where they're seeing an ancillary healthcare service that's within your system as opposed to going outside. Because I don't know about where it is in your neck of the woods, but in my city, we've got four hospitals that are within about five miles from each other. And they all have not only the hospital, they have primary care offices and they have physio offices and they have, you know, any, imaging, anything you can imagine, they've kind of got, they've got it all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are patients that that'll shop around. Like I'll go to, you know, this hospital a for orthopedic issues, but I'll go to hospital B for neurological issues or something like that. And some of that's going to be there, but as much as you can retain patients within your system, um, one, they're going to have a better experience, but then also you're getting the revenue and the, you know, the benefits of them being within your system, just from an EMR standpoint, being able to retain some of their records and continuity of care and that sort of thing. Do you have stats for like, like, uh, completing courses of care? So is there the typical, the typical practice you're dealing with at the moment? Is there a, is there a number that you look at or how do you, how do you actually measure it? Is it a, what's, what's the measurement stat? Yeah, so the the biggest KPI that I always look for and that I ask for when I get going with a new client or, you know, in this case, looking at my my clinic now is a course of care retention. So that's going to be your probably the biggest one, at least in the US and across most of Europe. Most of the the research indicates because I'm come from an academic an academia standpoint here. So I, I, I dove into the research a little bit but about mm-hmm. give or take. of therapy patients won't show up to follow-up appointments. And the the way it breaks down is that about 20% won't show up to their third appointment. And it kind of drops off by 20% every two or three appointments until you get to the, to the underlying statistic, which is seven out of 10 patients that get referred to physical or occupational therapy don't complete their course of care, which means um, doesn't mean that they, you know, had 14 visits authorized by their insurance and they saw, you know, they got better in eight. It means that they, they stopped showing up before they met their goals, before they were discharged. They self, they self discharged. They so self discharged. Yeah. It's a self discharge stat that we're really talking exactly, about. Exactly. Yeah. So what you're saying from your stats, so only 30% of people make it to that discharge, make it to discharge give or take. And that's, you know, that's a big, that was a big systematic review that was done across most of Western Europe and part of the U S the, in the last few years, what I've been seeing with clients is the good ones are, are sitting at about the the 50 to 60% rate. And then the ones that are doing very terrible are doing down in that 30%. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you measure that though, Rafi? Like if I'm a, cause we get clients all over the world here. Some of them just book an appointment. They don't actually have, they'll say at the initial consultation, you need to see me twice a week for four weeks. So that's, there's eight consults in that, in that plan. But each of the consults is in your EMR is just a standard consultation. There's no, there's no definite discharge date. How, how do we even know if that person has dropped off anyone unless, unless the last consult is a discharge appointment. So we're saying they just didn't make it to discharge. Is that, I'm just. Well, yeah. So a lot of clients that I work with don't have this number off the top of their head because like you said, no one's really tracking it. So one of the first things you need to do is start tracking it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there are a few tools out there. I've just have a, kind of have a spreadsheet that I've made and that I've handed out to, to clients over the years, but it's basically every time a patient is discharged, like you're doing a discharge, you're filling out the reason why you should have 
at any point in time, now this goes for whether you have multiple practices like a chain of clinics, each clinic or each facility should have, we call it an active list. So all the patients that are currently either seeing you or have authorizations to seeing you or have seen you in the last 30 to 60 days, and you should be following up with them regularly to find out. So we've like this clinic that I just bought, we've got, I don't know, 80, 90 patients that are on the active list. And we're probably only scheduling at this point because of COVID and the holidays are coming up. We got Thanksgiving. We're probably scheduled through November, probably about 70% of them or so. Mm -hmm. But what my front office staff is doing is every week they're going through that list. They're making the calls to all these patients and they're saying, okay, the last time we saw, saw you is, you know, October 23rd. Are you coming back? If yes, great, let's get you on the schedule. If not, can I ask you why? And you're documenting all of that in, in detailed form and then you can look at it later. You've got to have, it's almost like I said to some of my clients, you've got to have a formal discharge process. There's a, there's a graduation. Exactly. I, I know some, some guys that have a, it's almost like a graduation ceremony. They bring the cake out, they do all that sort of business. And yeah. you grad, you, so that's a, that's a definite graduation day because you got the cake. Like at least there's yeah. something to say. You're, some people do shirts. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And see, if you don't have, so if you don't have that, if you don't have, like it's, if it's not insurance, if it's private pay patients, if you don't have a discharge consultation or a discharge process, you've got no way of knowing what that stat is because every patient's going to still be active on your data. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're starting from the, from the back end here and you haven't been keeping track of this, you got to start, you know, tomorrow going into your clinic and coming up with that list of, who are all these people that we're seeing and what happened to them, right? Yeah. It's the discharge stats. So mate, 70% are dropping off. So if that's, if that's patient retention, what's patient engagement? Is that, is that different? Is that part of it? Yes. What's patient engagement. So while patient engagement will lead to higher courses of care retention. And when I say patient engagement, um, the literature defines it a few different ways. The way I define it is a patient being an active participant in their care. So this is a patient who is during the initial evaluation with you, if you're doing it right, um, co-creating a treatment plan with their clinician, monitoring that on their own. They're, they're adhering to whatever home program you might be issuing them. They're showing up to their appointments. They're actively engaged during the treatment. So they're not just passively receiving some kind of treatment. They're, you know, they're, they're working, right? So they're, they're, they're not just a passive, they're not just getting the plan and just saying, well, the doctor told me to come, so I'm coming. You're, you're trying to get exactly. them in the process in some way. Yeah, you're getting them to buy in, if you would. All right. Because what's the, you talk about the big money problem. I love your big money problem. Yeah. I'm sure you can look at the big money problem now you are in this practice. What's, yeah. what's, <laughs> what's, what's the big money problem you see at the moment based on that? And obviously one of them is that 70% drop off. That's, that's yeah, a, well, that's and that, that is the, the big money problem. In the United States, back in 2018, which is the last time that, that I've seen the numbers for it, so this is a couple years old, but it was a $63 billion problem, meaning that it was costing, this was private physio clinics, it was costing them about $63 billion in lost opportunity, revenue opportunities by patients not showing up to, to, to their practice, you know, to their, to their course of care. So... That big money problem is on the front end, obviously, it costs a whole lot more to acquire new patients than it does to retain the patients that you currently have. 
So if you happen to be, I like to use the, the, ter- the, the analogy of like a leaky bucket. So if you're, if you've got a, a bucket that's got two holes in the bottom of it and you're spending all kinds of money to pour water into the top of it, which is where most physio clinics go, right? We need to build the referral relationships. We need to reach out to some doctors. We need to, um, what is it? We need to build strong referral networks and relationships with providers yep. that costs money. And that's very important when you're, when you're first starting, right? Like if you don't have patients, you need to go out and get them. But once you've got patients and if you're managing and nurturing your active list, right, it is a whole lot less expensive to reach out to that active list, right? To make sure that the patients that you are currently seeing that have initiated services with you are following through. Have, they, have you been to practices, Rafi, where they, where they actually do have an acquisition problem? Like do you... Or do you always start with retention and internals first? Like you've ever seen a practice that just don't have enough front end? Yeah, and it depends, it depends where they are in their, you know, in their trajectory, right? If they're really, really early, they tend to have that acquisition problem. Or if they're, I did work with one client who was opening up a new location in a place, in a location that had two other established, well-established practices in the area. So they did have a little bit of front end problem <laughs> and they, mm-hmm. they did require a little bit of that front end marketing. The bulk of the bulk of what I see are, are people that believe they have a front end problem. And when you drill down into those numbers, when you look at the number of patients that are showing up versus the number of patients, um, the number of patients that are referred versus the number of patients that are actively being discharged, like mm-hmm. completing their course of care, the, the easy low hanging fruit is the patients that aren't showing back up. It's not even a, a, you know, we look at patient visit average. I'm sure it's a common stat that you guys look at, the n- average number of consultations. Because that, even, you might still have a high PVA, but the person may still not be completing their course of care. So it's not, exactly. it's not necessarily the be on it. So what, what I'm taking away so far, Rafi, guys, listen to this at the moment, you, you've got to work out that, that self-discharge rate. Who, who's, who's completing the course of care and discharging because you say so, not because they say so. What, um, what about clients, Rafi, who actually never want to discharge anyone? They, let's say they're, <laughs> a, they're a provider who, you know, they have an ongoing maintenance program. I know that throws up some issues with people. Maintenance program or they go into a massage program or they go into an exercise program. Should they ever be discharged at all, Rafi? <laughs> Yes. Well, and the, and the reason is because at least, at least the way I view it, and again, I come from, a, from an academic standpoint and I come from kind of just diving into the research a little bit, skilled physiotherapy and skilled occupational therapy is different than maintenance and wellness. They are both hugely and vitally important to the health of a nation and to the health of a population, but you do water down or you undervalue from a positioning standpoint, you undervalue or, or you project a message of less than if you are not discharging and making the clear delineation that, okay, you know, your, your wellness program should cost less than your physio program. Okay. Let's just establish that. So your wellness program should be less than your physio program. And the way you are justifying those costs is by saying, okay, you were in this program. It required a lot of skills, a lot of, you know, maybe time from the clinicians. Now you've graduated. We've given you a t-shirt or a birthday cake or whatever, whatever we did. And now we're giving you this other option, which is a way for you to maintain the gains that you've, you've, you've experienced during therapy. 
And that's a perfectly great way to keep some, you know, consistent revenue in your door. Wellness programs are awesome. Um, but you do need to make that delineation for the way I see it is more for the fact of not undermining your position as a clinical expert in the services that you provide, especially if you're in the, in the private pay or cash base side. So, of you, so you've got, you've got to have a parallel business model. There's a, there's a, there's exactly. a, there's another, there's another, there's another strand to this. It's not, it's not just physio continuing. It's you're in, you're now in our new program, Rafi, because you've graduated exactly. from a primary program. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, regarding, regarding this retention, everything else, does, does pre-booking help this? I'm, I'm a massive fan of, of treatment plans and, and booking people in advance in terms of their schedule. Does that help this self-discharge problem? It can from the sense of if you're, if you're tracking your active list, it'll give you an active list if you're pre-booking, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but the reality is if a patient comes in and they have a negative experience or you fail to you know, click that engage button with them, um, they're not showing up no matter what. You know, it might be a scheduling difficulty. It might be a financial difficulty. It costs too much, whatever. In my experience, very few times is the reason that they're canceling or the reason they're not showing back up the real reason. Most of the time, it's because they don't, you know, they don't think you, they don't believe that what you're doing is valuable or they don't believe you can help them. And it's just easy to say, oh, I got a scheduling conflict or, oh, you cost too much money because it's kind of an easy smokescreen, if you would, to throw up for the, for the real reason, which is you failed to make me believe that you're going to offer value. Is it different in the States, uh, Rafi, regarding insurance versus, versus cash-based people? Have you seen a difference in retention for people that are paying out of their own pocket compared to insurance-style work? What's the difference on, from, in the States and from what you've seen on that? Yeah, so it, it, there is a difference with one caveat. So what tends to work and what tends, what tends to keep the, the private pay or the cash pay clinics more full or, or have that higher level of retention or patient engagement is when they're, they're tailoring those treatments to an individual or the programs to an individual as opposed to what a couple of my clients have tried, which has not been very well done or not received well, which is we're going to do the same type of thing. So we're going to book you out three times a week for however many weeks. We're going to throw you into this program, whatever. We're just going to charge you a cash price for it. And that never works because you're already dealing with uh, when you're dealing with physiotherapy in that context, it's very commoditized. People don't really see the, the value in it. What works to keep patients engaged, to keep them coming back is being able to show whether you're having a value conversation, which you should always have with any patient, regardless of whether they're um, a private pay or an insurance patient, because it helps boost their engagement, but, um, and their buy-in in the program. But when you use that value conversation to then, with the patient, build out their treatment plan. So mm -hmm. I am a, a fan and I'm a proponent of saying that every treatment program should be different for every patient, regardless of whether or not they have the same diagnosis or the same, they underwent the same procedure, because every patient is going to have different goals and different priorities. Mm -hmm. Not saying that you should book them for you know, different number of visits. Maybe that's part of it. Um, but maybe it's just what you focus on. And part of that value conversation and part of that that takes place at the very first consult with a patient is establishing that that course of care, if you would, or that plan of care that is going to be 
you know, John Smith's course of care. And it's not just, okay, you had a shoulder, you know, you had a shoulder rotator cuff repair and we treat every rotator cuff repair this way. You know, you're going to get, you know, three, three exercises and then you're going to do this for three or four weeks and you're going to come in. No, it needs to be very individualized, very specific for this person. How does, um, let me throw this one at you. How does the, <laughs> how does the therapist's own concept of money or their, their own self issues about their fees, does that impact anything in, in what you're doing here regarding rebooking and retention? Is, is my, my own, if I'm the therapist, my money worries? Well, yeah. I mean, there. I my, the first person that I worked with with Rehab U was one of those that she worried about retention and she worried about the schedule when payroll was due, right? Because yeah. <laughs> she had to pay. Um, and then there's the the whole idea of money in general is just funny, right? <laughs> and it it's it's very personal. Some of the like our our upbringing affects the way we think about money you know, whether or not we think this is fair and all that kind of stuff. My way of looking at it is, again, if what you're offering is valuable, there should be room in there for the patient to make the decision or for the client to make the decision whether or not it's valuable to pay what you are offering, right? And it's not our responsibility and it's not our job as clinicians or business owners to project our values of what is and is not worth the price onto our patient. Yeah. It's like, it's like the, you let the market decide. The market will decide if they will pay your fees or not. If, you know, that, yeah. That's, that's the clearest choice, isn't it? If the market won't book in and you've put your prices up too high and, they, and the thing falls over, they, the market has spoken. But I've yeah, seen, or I've you've done happen. a poor job of, of demonstrating yeah. the value that you're going to offer. And I think confidence boils into this too, you know, the whole idea of money and confidence and all that kind of thing. But there, there are two real ways to get, to have just an innate sense of confidence in the in the service that you provide, in the value that you provide. One of them is your upbringing, right? Like, um, my my parents did a good job, and I don't have any confidence issues because of the way they raised me. <laughs> you know? yep. um, the other place though is is that what you said, market acceptance. So it might feel like, man, I'm charging a whole lot of money, until that first patient says, yeah, sure, I'll pay that. You know. Um, and it just takes a couple of those wins for you to start feeling a little bit more confident about the value you provide. Do you, um, do you have any strategies? Let's say you're working with a client and they've got, they've got a money sensitive therapist. They, you can see they're, they're, they're recommending based on the perceived finances of the client, not, not necessarily the needs of the client. Do you, what do you do? Do you take them and shake them? What, what's the, what's the strategy <laughs> for that therapist? They might not have had the upbringing that you or I have had. And yeah. What do we do? Part there? of that is, and and I've actually had this conversation with the with my front office staff this last week. Um, was you have to show them and explain to them one that you're not just a, a money grubbing person because that's one of the you're right. You're just greedy. You just want to see them because you're getting more money. And it's no. You have to you have to show them. Okay, listen. The services we are providing are going to help them. You know, whatever it is, live without back pain, get back to walking their their dog, or whatever it is. In order for them to achieve that, the clinician has determined that maybe it's seeing them once a week, maybe it's seeing them twice a week, whatever it is, whatever kind of treatment. Maybe it's manual therapy in conjunction with exercise. Maybe it's exercise alone. Whatever it is, those are all clinical judgments based off of a clinical reasoning, right? Yeah. 
So then why would you as a clinician, if you know that seeing a patient two times a week is going to help them achieve their goals, why would you recommend one time a week because you think that they can't afford it? You know, that's, you are in a sense robbing your patient of the outcomes that they should, they could have achieved if you had not done so. So I frame it in that way that, listen, this is what the, these are what the clinician's recommendations are. And it's our job to present that to the patient. And if the, if the patient then has a problem with that or says, listen, that's too much for me, or I can't, I can't do that for X, Y, and Z reason, then you can dig into it a little bit more. But again, my, my experience has been, especially when it comes to health, you know, that that's a pretty high priority for people in general. And if you're talking about alleviating someone's chronic back pain, for example, and they're telling you that it's too much money, the reality is that it's not the money. It's that they don't believe you're going to solve their back pain. And they'd rather take that money to a clinician that they feel can do that. Yeah. As I said, it's confidence, isn't it? It's confidence. And, and I, I can do this. But I want to delve in more to this retention and delivering clients a better overall experience. Because you say there are five, and I love these, there are five key steps to improving retention and delivering clients a better overall experience. And, and as I read your, your stuff, gee, you're an academic, Rafi. There's, yeah. there's stuff in here. I'd I laugh before the call. This could go for days. Step yeah. one, you want to implement a biopsychosocial approach to treatment. What's, what are you talking about, Rafi? Yeah, so... Well, there are actually a good number of Australians that might uh, might know Lorimer Mosley and, and the yeah. like, right? Yeah. Um, so a biopsychosocial approach is really just an approach that says, instead of looking at just the tissues or just the pathophysiological, big word there, um, <laughs> processes going on in a, in a patient, we're going to look at their entire, I, I call it, we're going to look at their whole person. Where are they coming from? The context in which they, they live, they reside, in which they do their work or you know, perform if it's a sports situation and how are all of those factors impacting this patient's injury or situation or diagnosis. And then taking that approach fundamentally alters the way that you're going to deliver care. Because instead of seeing a rotator cuff patient, you're going to be seeing this person who has, you know, maybe two kids and they work this kind of job. And then they also have a rotator cuff injury that's limiting x y and z maybe it's a the work that they do or maybe it's this this role that they have within their home as a parent and the way you're going to tailor your treatment for that patient is going to be different than um, maybe a different patient who has the same exact disorder the same exact rotator cuff injury even um, but they don't work and they you know maybe they're a pro athlete or something like that so it just taking all of that into account just changes the way you view patients it, it I like to say it humanizes healthcare, right? You're not looking at diagnoses and statistics. You're looking at individuals with their unique set of circumstances. So how, how do we do that? How, how do we encourage our teams to embrace that, that biopsychosocial approach when they've got half an hour, 20 minutes for initial assessment, whatever they've got? And how does that, what does that look like, Rafi? Yeah. So, I mean, when you say that people are like, Oh my gosh, I just see the paperwork piling up and the <laughs> patients, you know, getting angry in the, in the waiting room. It does not have to be super, super big or even formalized. But one, one question that I have my, my patients um, that I used to ask patients. And now that I have my, my clinicians ask patients and I have them ask this at every initial evaluation 
Um, some people call it the Dan Sullivan question. Um, he wrote a book about it. <laughs> That's probably why it's called that. But um, the question is basically, all right, Mr. Patient, Paul, um, it's a year from now and you and I are having coffee and you know, maybe you've, you've finished, well, let's just assume you finished therapy with me. You and I are having coffee and you're happy. You're really, really happy. What has happened in the last year that has made you so happy? And then you just take notes. And this is part of your initial interview with a patient. It doesn't have to be super structured. It doesn't have to add a whole lot of patient, you know, paperwork to it. But what that patient is going to tell you and the answer you're going to get is going to give you a whole lot of information about their values, their hopes, and their aspirations, not just for, for physiotherapy, but for their overall health in the next year or so. And then taking that, the, the information you get from that answer, and then using that and peppering that throughout your, your treatment program, one is going to hugely increase patient engagement and build the relationship and the rapport that you have with your patient. But it's also going to, again, fundamentally change the way you look at making recommendations for that patient. Do you find, um, I imagine a newer, a newer health professional, so a newer graduate, would be that heavily focused on the physical, getting the assessment right, getting the diagnosis right. They, they aren't quite at, able to do that as well. Is that something you learn over time or can we teach new therapists that skill quickly? Oh, you can teach new therapists that skill very quickly. I did a, you know, right before I left. So I was a professor up until August 31st of this year. Um, and I had 45 students that we were, we were running through at the time it was telehealth because of COVID. Um, but they went into the semester not knowing very much about a biopsychosocial model, not really, they felt very, it, it was adult um, orthopedic dysfunction was the course that I was teaching, adult models of practice or something like that. Yeah. Um, and by the end of that semester, they had all gone out into the field. They had all um, asked that question or a, a variant of it to a patient and had come back and said, oh my gosh, I thought I was going to be like, so super overwhelmed by just understanding the, the the anatomy and the physiology and what was going on. But in reality, and, and most of the literature does support this as well, like what, what leads to higher and better patient clinical outcomes is often the interpersonal interactions that they have with the clinician. Mm -hmm. And I think for new grads, for maybe people that feel like they're unconfident or they're, they're kind of shaky on those, the hard skills, if you would, um, being able to make a human connection is going to be a much, much more worthwhile thing than learning which tendon goes to what joint and what nerve operates it, right? Okay. You, <laughs> you, you can figure us, that stuff out later. You gave us one, one question. Um, are there any others, anything you can put onto a patient intake form, anything that can systemize that question? Or is there a question, like one, one thing that we used to say was what, um, uh, why is it important to get this problem fixed now? Which is kind exactly, of yeah. leading down that path. Is that, what other questions could we ask? Or, or is that pretty well the main question? Well, I mean, the, the, the time question works, yeah, the time frame because it, it shows intent or at least gets them to think about it. And you have to start thinking about like behavioral change at this point too. So you can ask some questions around that that are about trying to gauge where the patient is in their kind of decision tree of whether or not they're going to come see you. And this might be a question of um, why do you think you're coming to us? Or um, especially if you're dealing with, with patients that are coming referred to from a physician, 
um, asking that question, like, why do you think, why do you think Dr. Smith, you know, referred you to us or something like that? Mm. Um, those questions work. Um, but really, again, if, any question that you can ask that gets the patient to open up about something deeper than the diagnosis on the form is going to work. Even something as simple as, you know, I use the quick dash a lot or the dash for hand patients and for, for patients with shoulder um, issues. And that's something that as just a matter of process, we get a referral, we contact the patient, then we send out kind of a pre, you know, that, that new patient paperwork, we send that out before they even come to the clinic so they don't have to waste time in the clinic doing that. But what it allows us to do is the ones that return it to us beforehand, we're able to look through. And instead of just taking like a measure like the quick dash that gives you a, a, a raw score or something like that, that can be tabulated. Okay, you got a 60, so you're moderate you know, moderately dis disabled by this condition, you look at each individual item and some of those items um, are things like, do you sleep well? Um, is this affecting your social uh, life or your social functions and that kind of thing? If you can highlight those individual pieces and say, you know what, we were looking over your quick dash or this, you know, this questionnaire that we had you fill out and you said that this, this you know, shoulder problem is affecting your social life. Can you explain that a little bit? And then the patient will explain that a little bit. So it just takes a little bit of digging. And a lot of times it doesn't take a whole lot of extra work. Like if you're already doing these standardized measures for, you know, for monitoring and compliance and all that kind of stuff, why don't you, why don't you just dig it a little deeper and use them for something useful? <laughs> yeah. I think we could, I mean, I, I went to university 30 years ago, so, and I don't think we did a lot of this. So it's, it's very much anatomy, physiology, uh, is the, are the courses changing, Rafi, you've seen around the world? Are they, are they getting more in, engaged in this philosophy with our patients rather than just anatomy, physiology? Well, I think it's difficult. I think it depends where you're at, um, in the, both in the world and kind of your payment model. Like if you're in the U.S., we're still very much a fee-for-service model, and that kind of drives some of the healthcare decisions and the healthcare education. But the the literature that is coming out from that's being published in you know, peer reviewed journals all indicate that there are factors at play that are not biological that affect clinical outcomes. You know, social mm -hmm. determinants of health is one that was big a few years ago and the like. All right. So so there's there's step one: implement a bio biopsychosocial approach to treatment. Step two: you talk about it's all about relationships, which kind of follows on, but delve into that a bit deeper for us, Rafi. When you say it's all about relationships, what do you mean? Yeah, so there's, there was an interesting study published, uh, maybe 2016 or something like that, and it, it had to do with patients with chronic low back pain, and it had to do with their, one, their clinical outcomes, but also their perceived experience and perceived benefit of treatment um, after so many you know, so many visits with a physiotherapist. And what was interesting was that re the reality for these patients that had chronic pain was that they rated the clinicians that had a more um, personable nature. They were friendly, they were empathetic, they did, you know, they practiced active listening. They rated their skills and the experience and the benefit of their treatment higher than other clinicians who were technically more proficient, who might have held higher certifications, but who lacked in the personal side of things. Um, and again, it kind of rolls from this, like if you're taking the biopsychosocial approach, it kind of flows very naturally into it. We're all humans 
healthcare is a very human experience. I like to say it's, it's one person um, who is skilled in healing, which would be you helping another person who is on a unique road to recovery and a unique, unique set of circumstances. And it's our job as clinicians to kind of meet them where they're at. Um, and part of that is building real relationship, building real rapport with patients. Um, you say in, in one of your presentations that the issue that's, that creates if you've got multiple therapists treating the patient, so if, they're, if they see a different therapist over the course of their care, that's not an ideal situation from what you're saying. Yeah. Now, it, it can work in small clinics, like you know, the, maybe it's a, a couple business partners and they're both physios and they're kind of seeing everybody's patients like that. That works. If you happen to be in one of these, I call them therapy mills, these chains that kind of pop up and they're seeing, you know, 10 or 15 clinicians in there, you're going in, every patient is doing the same exercise. And on top of that, you don't, you know, you saw Sarah on Monday and now you might be seeing George on, you know, Wednesday and you don't, you've never seen George before. And you, you know that he doesn't know what's going on with your back. Mm. Um, it's hard to trust that patient or that, that clinician, right? Is there a fear the devil's advocate, is there a fear as a health business owner, if my therapists get too close or too, to develop too strong a relationship, but that's always the fear of the owner. Well, the, that therapist will open up, up the road and take well, all my database leave, with yeah. them. What, is, is that just something you just got to suck it up, Rafi? Cause that's, what's the alternative? Well, I mean, part of it is yes. Part of it is <laughs> I, I personally feel like, and this is just my experience dealing with clinicians and dealing with people that own businesses is that we're a unique breed in that there's a reason that probably what, you know, 5% of clinicians own businesses and the rest work for other people. Like I think it's an, it's an unfounded fear. Now in the off chance that you do hire like the whiz kid entrepreneur, who's going to bankrupt you. I mean, that's just, that's just the market doing its thing. I do feel like there is more business falling off the trucks. There are more people hurting and in pain than one clinic could ever satisfy. And since it is all about relationships, you know, your clinics currently is, could be serving a whole lot of people that they're not serving and they're not serving them either because um, you're not set up to build those relationships or they just haven't heard about you or whatever. So I don't think it's, it's really something to be, to be worried about, honestly. Um, Any, any tips on, on this step, on the relationship step? Um, is it, is it about, do we increase the number of phone calls? Like, can we systemize this or are we relying on people, our therapists just being better with people? Like, how can we, how can we make that, can we make that relationship better? Yeah. So, and, and when we're talking about relationship, we're talking about the relationship that they're, the, the patient might have with your clinic and the patient, that the, the relationship they're having with the clinician. So it is two different relationships we're trying to nurture here. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, you can definitely systemize the relationship that, that they have with, you know, ABC therapy by the way you communicate, by the way you're, you build them, by the way you're collecting, all of that kind of stuff. And then there is the working on the actual clinicians that are frontline that are seeing mm. patients and building the rapport. So it is two different prongs of the approach. Yeah. What'll, what'll you be doing at your new practice to make sure this relationship system works? What, what's, what specific strategies you'll be ringing all the patients before they come in, you'll be ringing them afterwards. You'll be, what, what's, what's some of your strategies you'll be doing to make sure that works? Yeah. So we do, um, We do call patients before and after and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that we started doing, um, I'm trying to remember the name. It's called the CARES questionnaire, 
R-E-S questionnaire. Um, and basically what it does, I'm trying to see if I can pull it up here. Um, oh, the care questionnaire, here we go. So this was developed by some folks that were, it's not me, some, some academics somewhere else. And um, it basically asks 10 questions of the patient and it asks all, it's all about the practitioner and you can have this filled out from a practitioner level or from a, from a clinical or an organizational level. But it's basically, did your practitioner make you feel at ease? Did they uh, let you tell your story? Uh, do you feel like they were actually listening to you? Um, were they interested in you as a, as a person and not just a number or not just a, a diagnosis? Um, did they really and fully understand your concerns? Did they show care and compassion? Were they positive? Did they explain things to you clearly? Um, did they help you take control or feel like you could take control of your healthcare? And then did they make a plan of action with you? So those are kind of like the 10 bullet points that they run through. So every patient that comes through our clinic fills this out at their first appointment. They fill it out at their reeval if they're having a reeval, and they fill it out at discharge. And we're kind of tabulating that and tracking that. And you, the people that have developed the, the care template or the care patient feedback measure have norms that are already established. So you can put it out there. You can, you know, they, you can even download. I think they used to, at one point in time, they had a spreadsheet that you could go to their website and download and it would do it all for you. But you can, you can track it all on your own, get your score, get your raw score or whatever, and then kind of see where you are in relation to the rest of the world, so to speak. And, they're getting, and my zero, personal zero, goal is to sorry, be zero, a little zero, higher than that. Sorry, zero out of 10, Rafi, is it out of 100? Is it 10 questions, zero out of 10? It is 10 questions out of, um, the, the rating is, it's out of five. So it's like excellent, you okay. know, very good, good, bad, terrible, never want to see you again. You and, know? So what, and, what, and what was your, what do you want your team to be? I'm like, missed off. So we shoot for, or at least I, my personal goal is to shoot for 15% higher than what the norms are. Now that's a little ambitious, but you know, you shoot for the stars. Yeah. You don't end up with a handful of mud at the end, right? What, what, I, loved, what I loved about that, Rafi, what, those 10 things, the CARES questionnaire, none of it depends on your technical skill. None of it depends exactly. on, and nothing really depends on whether the patient felt any better to a large extent, did they, did they get a great result? You just what, did they feel like they were validated and listened to as a client? Yes, exactly. <laughs> which again, which the literature shows is more important than the technical skills of the clinicians. Yeah, so, I, I, and I do, I do that because then when it comes time to performance appraisals, then when it comes time to, to all of that, I can say, listen, this is not something like, I'm not requiring you to go spend, you know, $1,500 on this certification. Mm -hmm. This is something that you can work on as soon as you leave this room with the next patient that you go see, right? Yeah, look, look through all the key words in that. Did you empathy? Did you feel like they were listened? Did you do all those things? And I mean, I, I must have said it 50 times on Profit Club interviews over the last 10 years, Rafi. Um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Exactly. I, I, I can't yeah. tell you how many times I've said that. But it, and, and, it, and having sold my businesses years ago, we always employed on people skills. And this is again, why we just, we realize it's all about people skills. It's not about technical skill. But yeah. You can, anyway. anybody can learn the science. Anybody can learn the manual techniques. It's hard to find. We, we hire for DNA, right? So step two is all about relationships. Step three, work on your communication. 
we're not just talking about words here. When you say communication, what are we talking about? How do we get better and what does that mean? Yeah, so when we talk about communication, we mean the experience of being communicated with or to. So this is not just the words that are coming out of your mouth, but it's, um, I'm sure that this is the case over in Australia too, but point of service documentation is huge, right? Everybody's typing away on their laptops or doing their iPads. And that's great. It's great for efficiency. You need to do it sometimes. You also need to know when it is entirely inappropriate to be looking at your computer when you're talking with a patient. So when you're ha- asking that question, maybe it's that one year question, what, you know, what, what happened in the last year that makes you so happy? Or maybe, you know, how is this affecting your day-to-day life? Or, you know, tell me about how this is impacting you. The worst thing you can do is ask that question and then turn your body this way oh. away from your patient to type. Because what subtly and subconsciously what you're telling your patient is, I asked you this question, but I'm really just trying to use it, the information to fill out this form so that we can get paid later. Or that's so, we can, so I can fill out whatever your goals are, right? Yeah. Again, it goes back to making that connection known and making the patient feel validated at the end of the experience. Yeah, you said like body language. As you said, that turning. Um, I, did a, I did a blog on this recently. I took my beautiful wife to a doctor and he asked her the question, so what can I help you with today? And he did exactly that. As as Helen started talking, he turned sideways to the computer and he started typing in. And I'm sitting there and I I wrote a whole blog about it. I said, what was the title of the blog? Uh, How this doctor lost us at hello. Because that's really what he did. He just, he lost us as soon as he did that. And I I felt like like stopping him. So, mate, do you want want to listen to Helen while she's telling you? Or would you prefer to keep (laughs) typing? What would you prefer to do? Like, it was, and it was dramatic. Like, but he would have lost that retention straight away. And we, and we, have, we haven't been back for exactly that yeah. reason. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of those things like this might require a little bit of extra work. You're, you know, you might have to write it down on, on paper in front of you and then transfer it later. Like this is one of those areas that you can't get around as far as efficiency and, and that kind of thing. But it's one of those things that if you want, it's one of those like short-term losses for a long-term gain. You want to gain this patient for a long, long time. That, yeah. that, five minutes or whatever that you're going to, sh- that you're going to shave off typing up your evaluation. Isn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. It was, it's funny. I think I said in my blog, I wasn't sure if he was, if he was checking his tax return or whether, what was he doing on the computer? There was no reference. There's nothing, yeah. even if he could have said something, I'll just update in, that in your notes, Helen, even something to tell exactly. me that he was doing something. He, he could have been checking Facebook for all I knew. Like it was yeah. diabolical. Well, and, you know, like I, I come from hand therapy and I would say this all the time, like, listen, there's no way I'm going to remember all of these numbers that I'm, you know, taking of all 10 of your digits. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be popping back and forth, but you know, if something, something comes up, let me know and I'll stop and we'll talk. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're allowing them to be in the consultation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then, as I said, word choice, the words you use, like a lot of, there are some scripts, as you've said, a couple already active listening you've talked about. Step four, so once we've done three work on the communication, step four, understand behavioral change. Yes. What are you talking Here's about? Important. What are you talking about? So the way that, that things get done in our life, obvious, uh, oftentimes is, um, involves some sort of behavioral change, especially when you're talking about you know, improving health, if you're running health and wellness, or if you're doing you know, physiotherapy, you're trying to get somebody that, you know, either to stop doing something that's harming them or to change what they've been doing. It might be a compensatory pattern or, a, or, a, or something like that, that's been serving them for years, and you're trying to make them move a different way or 
uh, complete an activity a different way, that fundamentally requires a shift in the way that 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 person is their behavior runs, right? You're trying to change, you're fundamentally changing their behavior. And that is not an easy feat. Um, and so you have to think about this when you're, when you're one, laying out expectations with patients, when you're educating them at the front end, but also when you're developing treatment programs with patients. So um, I like to say that understanding behavioral change is important from, from every aspect, from acquiring patients to retaining them and then treating them and helping them achieve their goals. If you look at just the very low hanging fruit, like the simple, simple, simple answer here is like, think about a patient that might be on the fence about coming to see you. So if you think about the, the circle of change, if you're following like at the trans theoretical model of change, which was developed in the sixties. Um, and it's been a, a pretty useful um, framework for understanding the steps people take before they take action, the steps people go through before they take action to change some kind of behavior. You've got patients sometimes that are kind of, maybe they've seen your marketing message or maybe they've, maybe they've driven by your clinic to see your sign and see what you offer. Um, but they're, we, we call them pre-contemplative. So they have not decided they're picking up the phone and calling you. Um, and they don't, you know, they, they don't have really any intent of calling you right now. The way you would market to that patient is going to be fundamentally different than the way you market to the patient that's coming in on the first appointment. And part of that is because you understand that they're the patient that hasn't called you yet is pre-contemplative. They don't even know if they're going to call you yet. So your message really needs to be about um, inspiring them to take action, um, showing them what a desire, what their desired future state is or what their, their future could be. Right. And then when they get there, you're all, you're all about, motivating them to to take the plunge and to to, to to sign up for your plan of care, to co-create a plan of care with you. And then throughout their course of care, you're reassuring their intent throughout. So remember, you know, you came in and you had said that this was very important to you. You know, throwing the football in the backyard with your grandkid was very important to you. And that's why we made XYZ your goal. And this is why you're doing these exercises we're always reassuring. So depending again on where that patient is in their life cycle with you or their, their, their stage of change changes the way you communicate with them, the way you interact with them. It's hugely, hugely important. We just, we just sit on our high horse as therapists and think, well, this is what they've got to do. They should just do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you wonder why we don't get the result. This is a, this is a problem we're dealing with people. Maybe Maybe yeah, we should become exactly. animal. We become animal therapists, Rafi, and the the, <laughs> the horse just does what it's told. Like, what what I love too, Rafi, as as we get to the final step, which is step five, measure and track patient retention. It circles us exactly back to where we started our our interview today. What we've got a we've got to measure retention because that's you know, you've got that that cares. I, lo I love the cares uh, questionnaire. I love the the discharge session. So measuring those those things that we can then use to record and, and check our progress. Um, any other KPIs? We've talked about re retention. So in terms of measuring and tracking patient retention, we've got a care score. We've got a dis self-discharge rate. Um, do, do you guys measure um, cancellation rates or anything else that shows bad patient experiences? Yeah, so we do we do measure cancellation rates. We we measure um, same day cancellation rates and no show rates because those are those are good to have. Um, 
we also measure, and this, this takes a little bit of legwork. You have to set this system up ahead of time. Um, but we do, and our, the EMR that we use kind of tracks this for us a little bit now too, because you can set in new cases per patient. Yeah. But we take our active list, which is the list that I described at the beginning, all these patients you're kind of, you're working with, you're cultivating, you're nurturing. And every time we get a new referral, we add them to the active list. We look back and see if they have seen us before, because this is measuring that second piece of retention, that clinic retention. And you're trying to you're you're trying to see okay, I'm not going to say like okay, 50% of your patients need to be returned customers, but whatever it is baseline for your clinic, you want to be monitoring it and making sure that you're not dipping below that, right? Because again, it costs more money to bring new patients in than it does to retain old ones. And if you can sit, like maybe it is 30%, maybe it is 40%, whatever it is that you're keeping it steady, you can kind of lock that in the back of your mind that, okay, at least at the, you know, if, if everything goes poorly and this physician really hates me and he stops referring to me, I've, I know I've got, you know, 40% of patients that will, that will churn back in with another problem because everybody's going to have, you know, a re-aggravation or a new injury or whatever it is. I found it interesting. You didn't want to give us, you didn't want to give a stat on that in terms of, in terms of the percentage of patients who are returning clients, is that, is that because it is so broad, Rafi, across, across businesses? It's just such a broad well, thing? It's very broad and it depends on your, your, your goals, right? So if you're a very small clinic and you're looking at opening up another practice or another facility or even yeah. just expanding the size of your business, you're going to want your, the, the number of patients returning probably to be less than the number of patients that are first-time patients because you're trying to grow your patient base, right? Yeah. If you're a very well-established clinic and you're not looking at growing at all, you're just kind of wanting to keep things where they are, maybe you want to shoot for more of like a 50, 60, 70% retention because you're just kind of dealing with those repeat business. It just kind of depends on, on where you're at and what your goals are. Okay. I love it. I love it. I love the stats. I, and I love speaking to academics. You know, I, yeah. I, and you're, you're an obvious academic, Rafi. Like you, you look at the research, you told us about the studies, you talk about this. Because I, I, I present very much from, uh, from experience and this is what we've done. And, but, but to get you guys on that have an academic background, I really, I really like that for, for Profit Club. But the, the biggest takeaway from today, what are the, what are the guys going to take away specifically from, from Rafi's session today? Yeah, fundamentally, it is cheaper and more profitable to retain patients than it is to go out and find new ones. And the key to retaining them involves building real human relationships with your clients. Mm. Uh, I, I love, I love the cares survey. You know, I think that's, I think that's a ripper. If the guys do nothing else from today, but, but yeah, really go do and, it. And you think about how many, how many times they're doing every week, technical in services or technical training We're today we're talking about knees and tomorrow we're talking about shoulders and how about having a whole whole module on cares, on going through this questionnaire and being better at that, like tra doing training on that, rather than just knees and shoulders? It's a anyway. That's my rant for the day, Rafi. <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's a great book Larry Benz from Evidence in Motion wrote it called "Called to Care," and it really touches on a lot of these points. He actually, I think they've got a course called the "Called to Care" course or something like that. Um, there it is. I, I tell you what, all my clinicians for Christmas this year are getting the book for <laughs> from me to them. And so it was called Called to Care. It's called Called to Care. Yeah. And who was the author? Uh, Larry Benz. Larry Benz. B e n z. 
I know I love it. I, don't, I, love, I love that session, the, the simplicity of it, but just ch- changing our focus. You've got to just make sure yeah. we focus on the right areas. How can people find more about you, Rafi? How can they find out about what, what you're doing with Rehab You Practice Solutions? How do, we, how do they find you? Sure. So you can find me at the website, which is www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. So that's rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com. Um, I run a podcast called The Better Outcomes Show. They can find that at www.betteroutcomes.show. Um, and I'm basically very active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Because yeah, <laughs> right, you know, oh, I loved your bio. I thought I've got, to, I've got to talk to this guy. So I, loved, I love what you're doing on LinkedIn. So, so what, were the, what were the websites again in case they missed it? www.rehabupracticesolutions.com, www.betteroutcomes.show, and then find me on LinkedIn. Mate, love it. But on behalf of Profit Club, mate, what a great session. As I said, we've done over 100 or so of these sessions now, but I love every one of them. And that was a great one. Fantastic presentation, mate. Loved it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Now, if, if you're not currently a Profit Club member and you want to get access to sessions of, of quality just like this with Rafi, go to healthbusinessprofits.com forward slash Profit Club. That's healthbusinessprofits.com forward slash Profit Club. See you next month. Well, I hope you enjoyed that bonus episode, that interview that I did with Paul Wright from the Profit Lab, that little mastermind that he's got going out of Australia. Hopefully, it didn't run too long for you. I know I try to keep him under an hour normally, but we ended up talking a whole lot. As you can listen from the from the episode, there was a whole lot of information. We talked about the biopsychosocial model. We talked about the five keys for the ultimate patient experience. And then we talked a little bit about kind of what I'm doing at this this practice that I'm purchased uh, here and primarily around things like the care questionnaire and things like that. What we can do as clinicians and business owners, um, anybody who's got any kind of say in the process of care at a clinic or at a facility, what we can do to make the experience of the patients that come into our clinics more human. So, Hopefully, you found the episode insightful. You can take some of the the things we talked about and implement them in your practice or in your facility, wherever you are in the world. If you like what we're doing here, head on over to iTunes. Give us a rating and review. It helps people find the show. If you want to get notified when we drop a new episode, we usually drop them every other week. And then, uh, like this week, you end up getting a bonus episode. You can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show and you can sign up there. We'll actually also send you a copy of the five keys to the ultimate patient experience. So if you listen to the episode, you kind of want to get more of a breakdown of those five keys, you can go to www.betteroutcomes.show and sign up there and we'll send it to your inbox. Uh, Until the next episode, guys, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.com 
rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.